Hey guys, I'm like, I'm not standing behind that. Yeah, there we go. That's me. That makes me happy. Um, I just want to let you guys know I just got hired to be the new youth pastor here. I'm very excited about this. I like hanging out with the kids because I refuse to accept that I'm 50. Um, so, so this girl at the airport, she's like, man, you have great style. And I'm like, no, I'm just immature and having, and having a midlife crisis. <laughs> that's, that's all that's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. um, hey, I want to talk with you guys today. I, I, I kind of jumped forward to the second statement from the cross last night because uh, I just think that the thief on the cross is such a great starting point to think about radical grace or how I refer to it as grace is always something that is unfair. Um, God's one way of love. But I think it's important um, that we go back to the first statement from the cross, which is, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because at the heart of the gospel is a God who is a forgiving God. Um, And this is important for us to understand because forgiveness is a complicated concept. I want to begin with um, sharing with you guys a short, uh, just a a segment from a letter uh, that um, I received. I did a men's conference uh, last summer uh, in Eugene, and uh, uh, there was a group uh, at the men's conference. There was about 200 guys, and in the front of the, uh, in the front were about 30 guys that were all from, uh, from kind of like a halfway house, like rehab, uh, and and these guys were rough. Like, they, like, like I'm talking like, they, they looked all like they were in the Hells Angels, like every one of them. It was incredible. Like, I actually took multiple pictures of their tattoos because they were so insane. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I just remember teaching uh, the, the last night, and I looked down, and I had this moment where I kind of broke down. I was talking about my dad and, uh, and his death, and... I just looked at this row of these tough dudes, and like every one of them are just like just weeping. And I was like, I'm like, oh, that makes me feel better because la- <laughs> yesterday they looked like they wanted to kill me. <laughs> and so, um, and uh, I, I received an email. You know, it's funny. We never know how the Lord is using us, uh, and and I just want to be an encouragement to all of you. Uh, the Lord truly does choose the foolish things to confound the wise. I mean, you're looking at a guy who didn't even come to faith till he was 27, uh, never went to college, barely made it out of high school, uh, and, you know, God has graciously taken this glitchy vehicle that I call me, uh, who is probably on many spectrums, and has, uh, has continued to surprise me with his willingness to utilize any man, any person, who is willing to surrender themselves to Jesus. And this is why uh, the good news is that um, I can always rest in the fact that no matter what my day has been, no matter how terrible I've, no matter how many cyclists I've tried to kill, that if I surrender to Jesus, he will work through me in spite of that. Um, and, uh, and he will do the same with you. I, I received this letter from this man. This is... This even gives you an idea of the, the row of guys. His name alone is just so incredible. Charles Geronimo. 
Um, he claims in the letter that he'd never written before, but I actually was so blown away by it. It was 10,000 words. I'm only going to read to you, which I wrote, an, I wrote a book, 10,000 words, like a quarter of a novel. So, uh, and he said he'd never written before, but um, he just sat down and had to express what he experienced. I want to just share a small portion from it because I think I want you guys to have an understanding of what it looks like to grasp forgiveness. Um, and, and this is what he wrote. Hello, Josh, you don't know my name and you don't know my face. I was at the Ecclesia men's retreat this past weekend and I felt a true need to reach out. In fact, I've been working quite diligently on this message, much to the irritation of my significant other. Before I go any further into what now appears to be developing into a rather extensive confession and, and by a very probable lengthy beginning, an update of the initi- of, as of the finished state of this work is that what actually lies ahead is a great breadth of testimony spanning nearly 10,000 words. For this, I'm sorry. But before anything else occurs, I need to say, a thing, say these things first. Your sermon on Saturday finally allowed me to surrender and submit completely to the way and to give my heart unreservedly over to Jesus. It took someone from my world, the filthy gutter, a hellborn. I don't know what he means by that. <laughs> a fellow witness, I love this line, a fellow witness to and participant of the perilous depredations of human evil to make it possible for me. You are not just a conduit, sir, lifting Jesus on high. Oh no, my brother, your purpose for me was clear and I have been thinking long hours upon what happened and have tried to tell the truth as best as I am capable for you here. First, this truth. I felt the love of Jesus truly for the first time through your preaching or at least my heart opened to receive the loving embrace of Jesus due to your guiding sermon. I'm still trying to sort out what happened, why and when. The result was that on Saturday night, after you spoke of your life and wept so tenderly and courageously in front of all of us silent strangers, I became deeply moved, and I saw my face mirrored in the bottom of the well of your pain that you had so bravely removed the cover of a, um, of for us to look into. You bore your own heart's sorrow and the joy of its redemption, showing it strongly, enduring its weight so freely for all to see. You allowed for us to witness in open view your true spirit and deepest wounds, weeping with joy and sadness and honesty. I think it was that, humble preacher, the true vulnerability exposed and displayed, the powerful pain and joy mixed together into a gorgeous human tapestry of spirit so rare to witness in this world. I saw it clearly streaming with bright love from you to all of us, your emotion, experience and stirring movement into all of our hearts. I pray for any man's heart that wasn't moved in those moments when you wept for your father. I've never experienced something so human, so true, so honest, so good, so familiar, allowing us to share in the deep chords of your sweet vibrating sorrow. This guy's a great writer. As I wept as you wept, and when worship began, I surrendered completely and gladly. There stood a lifelong atheist coward and dedicated citizen of the wilderness with hands raised high and wide to heaven, giving my whole life, my whole heart, my ocean of pain, my rage, my deep screaming fear, my doubt, my excuses, my purpose, my everything and anything over to Jesus in his way. And then I felt myself free fall gladly with serene blossoming joy in my heart, spirit, and soul. Forgiveness, that's forgiveness. 
I dove headlong and with conviction directly into the arms of Jesus, the king I now serve wholly. I felt, his I felt him embrace me, Josh White. I felt him welcome me. I felt him tell me that I was loved. And there I found much to my great surprise for the first time, I also loved him in return. It's all true. My God, it's all true. Eureka, hallelujah. I have been truly saved. Amen. In those moments, I found the peace I have been searching for every moment of my life. For the first time, I know what it is to love and to be loved. I have bowed. You have helped me bow, brother. I await kneeling, waiting for my purpose to be revealed to me by my Lord. I, you know, what's amazing is I thought it was like the worst message I'd ever given and was convinced that I completely blew it. And that just shows us the God's forgive God's love, what we're, what we're chasing after is not eloquence. Um, we're not chasing after new insight and supreme wisdom. What we're looking for is, and what the world is looking for from us as Christians is, is this Jesus really who he says he is, and can he fix my broken heart? And to, not, to taste the forgiveness of God um, is to taste what I would refer to as real liberation, real freedom. Um, the world doesn't understand freedom. We talk about it all the time. We think freedom, uh, I, I think our understanding of freedom is far more akin to anarchy, the idea that I should be able to do whatever I want in accordance to my plans and my wills. But the problem is, is that we aren't designed to live apart from others, nor do we live our lives in a vacuum. Everything we do has cause and effect. It impacts people around us. We can't escape those parameters. So that's not freedom. That's actually slavery because it's isolation and loneliness. We saw COVID gave the world a full view of how good it is uh, not for us to be alone, <laughs> uh, because that isolation led to people sitting way too long on Facebook, entering into the these echo chambers of of anger and all sorts of conspiracy theories on every side, and Christians fell into the same traps, and we started becoming a us against them people instead of a us for them, because Jesus is for us. And this first statement from the cross is the great reminder of that fact, that we don't get to say it's us against the world. There is no us against them if you're a follower of Jesus, because Jesus prayed these words from the cross in Luke 23, 33 to 34. He says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. This powerful statement is something that is revolutionary for us if we actually grasp its significance. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important for us to, to note that this is not the prayer of the gentle son trying to appease an angry father. This is not Jesus uh, trying to stop the mad dad from smiting everyone. 
When he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, we must never separate the Son from the Father in such a way that we now have two different gods. We have one God who is revealed to us in three persons, which means that God and his essence, although it's a mystery, is a community within himself. But he cannot be divided against himself. In other words, the Son only spoke those things which pleased the Father. He wasn't asking a reluctant Father to forgive a rebellious people. He was reflecting the Father's very heart because God has always been a forgiving God. I think that this is important for us to know because when I first got saved, my view was that Jesus, I had a, first of all, you heard my story last night enough to know that if you have a really difficult relationship with your dad, thinking of God as Father is very complicated. So for me, it was always much easier to think in terms of Jesus. And, you know, the good news is that there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved, but Jesus says, pray to the Father in my name. But that was complicated for me because my concept of Father is abandonment, unpredictability, um, a lack of reliability, uh, and, even, and even damaging living. So uh, it's taken many years. It took me becoming a father to begin to grasp on some level uh, the, the heart of the Heavenly Father, um, and it really took just the Holy Spirit giving me a new vision for what fatherhood is. And when we talk about the fatherhood of God, uh, yes, we are, uh, as fathers, uh, there is a, a shadow of, of similarity, but there is something wholly other about the fatherhood of God as the creator of all things. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he said, if I only speak those things which the Father gives me to speak, then what he is revealing, he is, he is functioning as the true prophet. He is speaking the revelation of God's heart over a rebellious world. That God, for some mysterious reason, has chosen to forgive rather than to damn. Uh, and I think that this is a, a, a powerful thing. But there's... there's there's the beautiful aspect of this, this statement. Father, forgive them, um, which is, this is God's heart toward you and toward me. But then there's also the brutal reality of this statement, which is, forgive them for they don't know what they do, which means ignorance is not innocence and that there is much that needs to be forgiven. That's a profound reality. That's why I would say that the gospel's as good news can't truly be good news until we understand, uh, as my friend David Zoll calls it, our low anthropology. That God is so much better than you can ever imagine. And friends, you are so much crappier <laughs> than you can imagine. I always like to say, like, if we just accept that we're not bigger failures than God already knows we are, um, the gospel starts to become good news. That's what I love to tell people every week because I like to be an encourager. You're not a bigger failure than God already knows you are. Um, <laughs> and because it is the belief that, no, there must be something good in me. There must be something savable or lovable about me. But God loves you. His grace is his one-way love. It is a love that is not determined or defined by who you are. It is a love that is defined by who he is in the essence of his being. The mystery is that God has for some reason, the God who is complete and whole in himself, 
has determined to not exist without you. And I can't speak to why other than because it's his nature. He created out of love, he forgives, and he saves out of love. And so the question for us is, how do we comprehend then forgiveness? And in our lack of understanding of forgiveness in our current day, and our often refusal to give forgiveness, is a sad revelation of our misunderstanding of the gospel itself. Um, when I think about forgiveness, I mean, think about forgiveness. I, I wrote about this in the, in the book in great detail, but forgiveness is not a word that is really understood uh, today. It's, it's challenging to define, uh, and it's even more difficult to give and to receive. Uh, I refer to it as the ghost of days gone by. Uh, in fact, uh, it's, if I was to use the, the current vernacular, it's not a word that's currently trending. Uh, forgiveness is, is, a, is a, a, a challenging concept for us. And, and it, it, this is why the words of Jesus can haunt me with such paradoxical meaning. There, there's, there's a profound reality because he, here he is as the judge and the judged in our place working out the forgiveness of a people that don't want anything to do with him. And what does that actually mean for us as Christians and how are we to understand what it means to enter into this realm of forgiveness? When I look at, uh, at TV, well, you think about television, uh, is forgiveness really a theme that you see very often presented? I, you know, that we generally, when you hear the word forgive me, it usually comes from like some character that's about to be executed, you know, begging for mercy. Like, forgive me, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, or I, I, I even wrote in the book that it's, it's a phrase that, um, that you know, um, that uh, my kids never even really used. My, my son and my daughter never said, Daddy, will you forgive me? Uh, why would they say that? Because it would never cross their mind that my, that my love for them was ever in jeopardy. Uh, it was assumed. I would say when grace, is, when grace rules the home, forgiveness becomes the air that is breathed in that room. That my love is not contingent upon their performance. I always, I always say, like, I, my son could become a heroin addict and rob me blind. I still wouldn't kick him out of my house because he's my son. Because I knew what it was like to grow up where love was contingent, and it was built upon my behavior, and it was always, it's not enough. I would say that my, the step na- the, the, my stepdad's nickname for me was half-ass. He never understood the power and the prophetic reality of words, that if you speak something over someone enough, they will become what you speak over them. Grace is what must dominate our lives. And if we live by grace, we will be a forgiving people. But forgiveness is costly because true forgiveness means that we must be willing to absorb the wrongs committed against us. And this is why we have to understand our own brokenness and how much we have been forgiven because that's how we will begin to be able to move into the power of this. I, I love my dad. It's so funny. There's so many amazing lessons I've learned about these things from my father. I remember on the phone once with my dad, I was asking uh, um, 
my dad, like, hey, dad, do you believe in hell? And he goes, he goes, oh, yeah. I'm like, really? Like, you're not even a believer. Like, you believe in hell? And he goes, I go, why do you believe in hell? And he goes, because I know so many people that need to go there. <laughs> but the best was I said, what about you? And he goes, damn it, Joshua, I'm a good person. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then I just remember he's like, I got to go. And he hung up on me. I was like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> it's like lessons from Alexander White. Um, but that, that is the, the, the nature. And this is, this is the, the, um, the spirit of our, our age, our moment right now, is, a, is, a, is the age of victimization, hyper-victimization. We're all victims. Um, they, you know, it's not, you know, it's not me. It's because it, it, I'm, I'm this way because of what my dad did to me. Or I'm this way because of the lack of character. And it's not that... It's, we are the products of our histories, don't get me wrong, um, but our unwillingness to accept our own brokenness, that we all play a part in this grand narrative that, that says that all people are responsible for the crucifixion of God, that every one of us played a role in that death, that there is much that needs to be forgiven. And until we understand that there are only two kinds of people in the kingdom of God, you know what those two kinds of people are? Evil people that said yes to Jesus and evil people that say no. There's only two people in the world, evil people that say yes and evil people that say no. If I was to ask you today, if you view yourself as evil, most of you would have a hard time saying yes, because our concept of evil is usually anything but us. It's like that, it's those people out there. It's so funny that the church often lives in the sphere of those pagans, you know, places like Portland, like all those crazy progressive pagans, you know, they're the real problem. Listen, the greatest enemy the church has ever faced and will ever continue to face comes from within its own pews. We are our own worst enemies because we, like everyone else, are evil people, but the difference is that we are evil people that have said yes to Jesus. A saint is not someone who does everything right. A saint is just a sinner who cried mercy. <laughs> I, give. I can't do it. I need help. That's what a saint is. I think we have poor constructs of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So when we begin to think about forgiveness, we've got to think in terms of this radical heart of God. I mean, look what it says in John 14, 9, 10. If we think at the heart of the heart is that at the center of the gospel story is what I refer to as the God of yes. He's the God of all comfort. Jesus answered, do you not know me, Philip, in John 14, 9? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is, do, who is doing his work. Jesus, when you think about Jesus, what do you think? Do you think that Jesus had some kind of unfair advantage as the perfect man because he actually was God? I would say we have the wrong idea. Why did people hate Jesus? It wasn't because they were seeing God. 
It's because they were seeing man as God intended man to be. Because Jesus surrendered the glory that he had. I'm not saying that he wasn't the eternal son of God. He was fully God. He was fully man. I would be a heretic to say anything else. But I would say that he functioned as a man, surrendering the power of his deity, surrendering it for that time so that he could reveal to the world what it looks like to live in total dependence upon the Father by the power of the Spirit. So what the world saw was actually perfect man, spirit-filled man. He is the firstborn. In, in, uh, in Christian tradition, the word is referred to as recapitulation, that he is the firstborn over a new humanity. He is the second Adam. He has come to show us what real humanity looks like. Um, he's the one for the many and the many in the one. And, and when we think about Jesus as the perfect man, what Jesus did is he surrendered. When he did miracles, he wasn't just functioning autonomously um, in his own power. He, was, he had surrendered his power. He is showing the world what God can do through a man when one is fully surrendered. So he is the spirit-filled man. He is the God-man, but he played fair. Dorothy Sayers once said, whatever game God is playing with human suffering and the dilemmas that we are confronted, he has played fair and he has taken his own medicine. People always ask me, what do you, you know, do you think that there's a, what about human suffering? And the, the, the questions around human suffering is, is a question of what we call theodicy. What, how do we understand God's goodness and how do we make, how do we understand suffering in light of that? And I always say, there is no explanation for human suffering, adequate explanation. I, I don't want to, I don't need to know why I suffer. I just need to know that God cares about it and has done something about it. I don't know why the snake is in the garden before the fall. Because the scripture doesn't tell us why it's there. So why are we trying to figure that out? What I'm interested in is what God says to the woman, that through your seed, that snake's head will be crushed. I'm interested in the solution. I don't have to know the ins and outs. Why, what did, did God give Job any answers for why he was suffering? And Job's like, give me a theodicy. And God's like, yeah, no, I don't have to do that. I don't, I don't need to do that. Um, and what does he say? <laughs> were you there when I created? <laughs> no, you were not. So we're always being speculative about why we suffer, why we hurt. I would say it would be far more beneficial for us to look to the one who said, Father, forgive them. Because it's there that I find, I don't find the answer for why I suffer, but what I find is the suffering God who says, I care about your suffering and I am willing to enter into it. Will you, are you willing to trust me? That's the real question, isn't it? When Jesus says this, I only speak. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. This tells us something very beautiful about God, that there is no God behind the back of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, if you want to know what God is like, you begin with Jesus. For Jesus is God come to us in human form. And I look to Jesus, and the understanding now becomes more and more clear that God's desire, this, I think this idea that like, God is, I, when I first became a Christian, this was kind of the picture that I lived with, 
And it was a very false picture, which was Adam and Eve fall. Sin enters the world. God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. So God turns his back on humanity. Um, and now there is a rift, a, a division between God and man, an, an inescapable rift. And, and we are lost. And Jesus comes and he, and he as, the, as the humble son, takes that holy anger and hatred of the Father and absorbs it into himself. So he becomes, it's the concept of penal substitution that God pours his wrath out on the Son. It's funny. We have worship songs that say that. He took the wrath of the Father. Many of you sitting here, maybe all of you, believe that Jesus is the wrath bearer on the cross. But I would actually challenge all of you you show me one passage in the Bible that says that Jesus took the wrath of God. It doesn't ever say it. It's an assumption. What Jesus took is judgment, but he is also the judge at the same time because he is God. And you can't split up the Godhead that way. The Father did not turn his back on humanity in the garden. In fact, it is humans who are hiding. It is God who immediately walks right into the face of sin. He says, Adam, where are you? It is God who begins to reveal out of the gate that he is by nature a forgiving God because he is love, is my point. And so the question, you know, questions arise, would there be forgiveness if there wasn't the cross? It's a stupid question because the cross is God's final solution to the human dilemma. But I think it's just really important to understand that Jesus comes to reveal to us what God has always been like. He is a God who loves, he is a God who forgives, and he is a God who says, we're told in scripture, does not desire that any be lost. Now some have asked me like, what are you saying? Are you saying, are you saying that all will be saved? I'm, I'm saying that I believe that Jesus accomplished salvation for all people but not all people will receive the gift. But that's not on God. That's why I always say it may be possible to die unsaved, but it is not possible for one to die unloved. God loves. The question is, is will we receive it? That's really the question. So this is the heart of a God who cares. That's why I always say, like, on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. He loves you. For God so loved the world. What an incredible passage. Uh, and, and I think that for us, what we have to understand then, okay, if this is God's heart toward us and God's heart is to forgive, well, then we've got to deal with the kind of the darker spot, which is there's a much that we've done that needs to be forgiven. And this is what I refer to in my book as the law of mixture. And I hinted at it last night, but I think it's something that we um, have lost sight of uh, you know, I, I got saved into Calvary Chapel, so I, you know, I was Calvary boy for, from, you know, I worked at Calvary Chapels. Uh, when I started Door of Hope, um, I, I chose not to be a Calvary Chapel, but I also worked for two where the lead pastors had moral failings. So, I, you know, for me, I, the, my difference is that it, it all came down to ecclesio ecclesiology, uh, church governance. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I could ever hold to the Moses model because I don't trust me to be Moses, so I decided to start a church that immediately had elders that had the power to fire me at any moment because I think that's good because 
I should, someone should be able to fire me. That was my, my, my standing. But I have, am so grateful for Calvary and so many things that I, I, um, I learned. I mean, it gave me a love for scripture. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it gave me um, a deep conviction and a, and a passion um, that revival is possible um, and that I'm tired of hearing about the Jesus movement because I want my own Jesus movement. Um, I, I think that I believe God is going to bring one great revival, just a personal conviction, speculative maybe at best, um, but my hope is that there is one final great revival before Jesus returns. And let me just say, I definitely think we're closer to Jesus' return today than we were yesterday. I'm, con- I'm absolutely confident of that. I'm not here to pin the tail on the Antichrist, as I have heard many Calvary pastors do. <laughs> but I do believe Jesus is returning bodily, and I think that the, we shouldn't be surprised that the world is getting worse. I was like dumbfounded at how shocked everyone was during COVID that things could get bad. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that Jesus said that it was going to get worse before he returned. But the law of mixture is the thing that helps me remember that, because here is the law of mixture. I love this passage, Psalm 14. I'm not a huge fan of the message by Eugene Peterson. I would say, keep in mind, if you have the message, it's awesome. It's not a translation. It's an interpretation. Um, But there are moments that are genius in it, uh, because it's one man's translation of the scripture. All translations that you use are like hundreds and hundreds of people examining how, how words are being um, translated. Uh, but there is a lot of beauty in the message, and this is my favorite of the whole book. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. God sticks his head out of heaven, and he looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, even God expectant, just one God-ready woman, and he comes up empty, a string of zeros. What a gift. That, that's just like... That just, that's pure gold right there. Um, This is what gets me out of bed in the morning, this verse. Uh, For they know not what they do. You see, the gospel is driven by the symbol of the cross. Everything in our world is driven by the symbol of the ladder. And the church often abandons the cross and turns to the ladder. Because the latter is a much easier concept. It's climb your way to heaven. Get better. And don't think for a second that just because we're good, you know, uh, evangelical Protestants who believe in the gospel of grace, that we don't abandon grace and misunderstand it more than we, than, than we do. Because we, we, we often get it wrong. Because our natural default setting as human beings is to quickly turn from a reliance upon the finished work of Jesus and turn back to what must I do now to impress him, to stay in good standing with him. And this is why men and women in the church continue to go into hiding because they can't handle the fact that the standard that they believe God has placed upon them is impossible for them to achieve. Um, do, do we not understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not the ideal in which we strive for, 
but it is the impossibility of the kingdom of God that is meant to force us back to the feet of Jesus again and again. That's why the first beatitude is blessed is the poor in spirit. But instead, we want to try. We want to try to figure out what actually is a lustful look versus a non-lustful look. Because if you're a dude with the parts that make you a dude, I promise you that's far more complicated than you think. <laughs> and you can't escape the, the sin in our world. Is, is, uh, one of my favorite theologians of all time, uh, uh, Jacques Ellul, said, sin is actually becoming increasingly collective due to our technological age. He wrote that in 1948, long before the Internet. He was saying, with the globalization of the world, we are becoming more and more responsible for our brother's sin because we can't escape it. We turn on our phones, and it's there. We turn on our TVs, and it's there. We go into the grocery store, and we, we just try to stand in line to innocently buy food, and the picture is on the magazine, and it's there. Sin is a collective reality. God has come up with a string of zeros. And if we were anything other than zeros, he wouldn't have needed to come down and die for us. You see, the ladder is, is, a, is a broken system that Satan loves to encourage believers to turn back to. And that is this false belief that this is how, this is how Satan's attacks work. The first punch is the temptation. Hey, it's not that bad. God will forgive you. You're up too late. You're looking at your computer. You're feeling like you deserve some sort of escape. And it's right there at your fingertips. You don't need to go to some nasty little adult store anymore. The devil has come into your bedroom. He's come into your phone. He's right there with you. And I know for a fact, just by pure statistics, that many of you in this room probably looked at porn last night. And here's the fact, is that Satan says, it's not that big of a deal. It's all grace. And then you look, and then you feel empty. And then he says, God will never forgive you for that. That's the, that's the other punch. It's not that big of a deal, and God will never forgive you. And both of those things are wrong. It's always a big deal, and God will always forgive because all has been forgiven. And the only thing that can break us free from the tyranny of those lies is to actually just come out of hiding and be honest about our own brokenness and understand that we are zeros, which actually allows us to begin to move up. That's why one of the most profitable ministries in Christianity is prison ministry. Because guys, they've got, there's nowhere to go but up. But see, when we actually think our lives are somewhat pulled together and we still are in the business of wearing masks and hiding our own brokenness and pretending to live an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. Because if you even knew what I thought for five minutes when I'm alone, you wouldn't listen to me for a second. Because I can't even control the racing thoughts and the insane ideas that I have and the evil that can come in so quickly. And what I have come to recognize is that my freedom, my liberation, and my power is in my surrender of my glitchy self to the king who has forgiven all. And I find that those things don't have power over me when I continually bring them into the light. That's the power, the gospel. That's what the world wants to see. This is what 
forgiveness looks like, but we have to understand the law of mixture. So someone say, well, what do you think about sanctification? Aren't we, aren't we supposed to be getting better? And I would simply say this, the man or the woman that is truly being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you see your sin, not the less. Because Jesus is light, and you cannot come into the light without being revealed. And so I would say, when someone says, I think I've actually conquered that sin, I would say, you're not drawn close enough to the light. Because I promise you, there are closets that you have not emptied yet. Because I find like fighting sin is like playing whack-a-mole. You ever played that game? I hate that game. Because <laughs> you knock down one head and then another one pops up. And you're like, oh, oh, man. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's, it's a reality. This is why John Calvin was right when he said that the human heart is an idol factory. You pull up one idol and, there's, and right behind it, there's a string of others. Every time I have some kind of victory over one area of sin, it's like Jesus and his goodness just reveals there's a whole nother arena that I haven't even touched. And then I'm like, yes. And then I'm like, and then I go back to things that I thought I conquered 20 years ago. Because this is the reality of, the, of, the, of, of living in a fallen world in the age of grace. And Jesus knows this. And this is why Luther said, listen, Melanchthon, great reformer that worked alongside Luther who was having deep insecurities that he wasn't for sure saved, that he wasn't doing enough. He wasn't, he, they didn't have enough freedom from his sin. He, he writes Luther and all this anxiety. What, like, like, I'm still having lustful thoughts. I'm still struggling at times with drinking too much. I'm still struggling with these things. And Luther writes this insane letter. Very controversial. I love Luther. Luther was the first punk rock Christian. <laughs> I promise you. This is one of Luther's famous lines that I think is so funny. He's like, he who drinks sleeps. And he who sleeps does not sin. Therefore, let us drink. <laughs> I think that was all very tongue-in-cheek. I think that man was like, he's like a legitimate, like, crazy comedian who loved to say controversial things to get you to think about the gospel in a new way. But this is what he wrote. He said, if you were to commit adultery every day, if you were to kill, if you were to lie, if you were to do all these things, Melanchthon, not any of it moves the needle in one degree when it comes to the finished work of Jesus. He said, therefore, sin boldly. Now, most of us, when we hear that phrase, <laughs> sin boldly, you're like, wait a minute, isn't that the very thing that Paul said, don't do? Should I sin that grace may abound? But Luther doesn't end there, and that's not what he meant. He said, sin boldly, but cling to the mercy of Jesus even more boldly. And what he meant is this, Melanchthon, sin is an inescapable reality on this side of eternity. So cling to the sinless one, because that's your only hope. That's what separates the saved from the lost. It's not your sinless perfection. It's your surrender of your sinful self to the sinless son who imparts to us his righteousness. It's the gospel. It's classic 
Protestantism. It's the beauty of what actually compels us to live differently. This is why the law of mixture means this, is that what does it mean then to be, this is why Paul commands us to be spirit-filled, something that we're supposed to do. How do you fill yourself with someone, because the spirit isn't a force to be wielded, but someone to be submitted to? I always say, you have all of the Holy Spirit you will ever get the moment you are born again. But what it means to be spirit-filled is not you getting more of the spirit. It's the spirit having more control of you. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. And so what I say is this, is that even as a spirit-filled man, the law of mixture is at play. And I shared this last night, that even when I'm preaching, there's sin is still at play. I can't escape its reality but I can surrender my sinful self to the king who can commandeer our glitchy bodies, our glitchy personhoods, and bring great good through us. This is why the church, you never argue for the gospel based upon church history, because church history is built upon sinful men and women. And I, and I would say this, show me one saint, one saint, one great Christian leader, and I will, I will sing their praises of where they have contributed to the mosaic of the gospel of historical Christianity, and I will also point out very quickly their unbelievable glitches and problems. Luther is one of my great heroes. One of the greatest blights in Christian history is Luther's letter against the Jews at the end of his life when he was clearly having some kind of manic break when he actually challenged Christians to burn all the Jewish temples. And the Nazis themselves used that letter as an excuse for the extermination of millions of Jews. Mm, yikes. What do you do with that? Do I believe that Luther loved Jesus? Absolutely. I believe that Luther, sadly, sin won. The devil got to him in that moment. Calvin stood by smugly, allowing a man to be executed because Calvin didn't like a particular theological point that this man had. And it wasn't even anything that actually put the man outside of the umbrella of orthodoxy. It just didn't align with Calvin's particular orthodoxy. I listened to the snarkiness and the, the ways that pride goes unchecked in the pulpit. Sin is all around us, friends. You don't have to look that far. Augustine one of the greatest, the church doctor, probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers in history outside of, outside of the apostle Paul and Jesus himself thought that sex was always a sin unless you were making babies. Man, that's a bummer if you've got a vasectomy, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I guess I'm going to sin, Augustine, when I just keep on sinning until I can't. I heard a great... Great joke. You guys know that, that Christian uh, um, uh, counselor, uh, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Cloud. Oh, it doesn't matter. But he, 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 he told my friend, um, he's, my friend's like, hey, give me three pieces of wisdom um, uh, for when you turn, like, what, what are three things that I should know um, after you turn 50? And he had the great, and this guy is like such a godly man. I was shocked when I heard this. But you're, it's a group of guys, so I'm going to tell you because I, I feel free. And like I said, it's not my church. Um, he, said, he said, number one, never pass a bathroom. Number two, 
never trust a fart. <laughs> and number three, never waste an erection. <laughs> Those were his three recommendations after 50. And I was like, that kind of makes sense. All those things make sense. Mixture. That's my point, guys. You're listening to mixture right now. <laughs> I just need to give you a commercial break for a second. But here's the thing. Sin is there. It's at play. It's, it's, not, it's not escapable. So it's not about sinning less. I like to say it's about loving more. That's the law of mixture. They know not what they do. Sin is there. We don't, we're not even aware of all the ways that we do it. But then there's the suffering and forgiveness, and this is where I want to close. There they crucified him, it says. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that they will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Our opposition. We find Jesus identifying with broken humanity for the request that he has made is made in the midst of incredible anguish. That he is suffering for the joy that is set before him. Do you know what the joy that is set before him is? It's you. You're the joy set before him. The costliness of forgiveness is significant. Because to forgive a wrong means, when someone wrongs you, when someone does something that hurts you, my father never apologized to me for abandoning us boys, my brother and I. He never apologized. In fact, he straight up told me in 2020, right before he became a believer, he goes, I'm not going to apologize to you, Joshua, for how I raised you. <laughs> and I started laughing. And I'm like, Dad, I, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but like, that's a ridiculous statement. You literally didn't raise me. Like, I'd, <laughs> Mom didn't even let me see you because you were a Coke dealer. Uh, and I think I saw you like five times, like, growing up. So, and he goes, Damn it, son, when I call you, I want to feel better, not worse, click. <laughs> and I just remember, I can be crushed by that, or I can laugh at the comedy of human brokenness that I myself participate in. I can't hold a grudge against my father when I know what I have been forgiven of. When I know the women that I took advantage of when I was trying to be a rock star in my 20s before I met my wife. When I think of the pride and the arrogance that I lived with. When I think of the two girls that I got pregnant at 18 years old that both had abortions. When I think about the travesty of the ways that I took advantage of friends. And Jesus says, Josh, in spite of all that, I love you. It's the whole reason I came. It's the reason I died for you. To be forgiven of much is to love much. And I can't say, look what my dad did to me. Look, my, I can't be the victim any longer. Because every one of us will be a victim and a victimizer. And the good news 
friends, is that Jesus died for both. He died for the victim and the victimizer. And so, yes, my father hurt me. I don't have to downplay that. I don't have to pretend like I grew up with some perfect childhood. But I also don't have to bear the pain of refusing to let those wounds be healed. And I realized early on, and I close with this story, that I did not truly forgive my father until I got close enough to him to truly absorb the wounds that he caused. I flew to Alaska. My aunt called me in hysterics and said, your dad's in the hospital, his esophagus is ruptured, he was on a drinking binge, I don't think he's gonna make it, will you please? And I went for her, not even for me. I'm like, I was kind of fed up. We were in, we, Dad and I had been fighting. I've been trying to work toward restoration. And I flew up there and I thought I was gonna say goodbye to my dad and there was gonna be no resolution, no resolve. And I never, I'll never forget this. I, I go into the hospital room and it just reeked of a man like sweating out toxicity out of every every cell in his body. Um, I mean, just foul. And he was, and he just, they'd just taken the, the intubator, intubation out of his throat, so he was breathing on his own, and he was awake, and he just was gray and haggard and just looked terrible. And the stench was unbearable, and I have a really hard time with bad smells, so I'm like, oh, I was, I just remember just feeling queasy. And I walked in the room, and, and Dad goes, you look good, son. And I said, you do not look good, Dad. And I'm like, and you smell so bad. And he just goes, F you. <laughs> and I'm like, and I said, it's good to see you, Dad. And he's like, it's good to see you. And I went over and sat by him, and he got teary. And I, I put my hand on his shoulder, and I was like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this to yourself? And he's like, I don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, I know, I'm like, listen, I'm so glad to be here. I literally can't sit in here until you get a shower. And so I'm gonna go um, ask, uh, ask the nurse uh, to give you a shower, because um, they told me that they would. <laughs> and and uh, he's, like, he's like, I'm not gonna let, I'm not gonna let someone bathe me. And I'm like, listen, I feel very confident right now that I absolutely am so much stronger than you. And if it's not her, it's gonna be me. I'm gonna bathe you. And he goes, all right, let the lady do it. <laughs> and he, he said, I, I, I've got to go to the bathroom. <clears throat> so I, 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 I'm like, well, let me help you. And he goes, I got it. And the, and the nurse said that he could get up and go to the bathroom. And he was connected to all these IVs and he's carrying the post. And he wouldn't let me help him. I said last night, it's much easier, it's, it's much easier to give than it is to receive. And he stood up and he got like two feet in front of the bed and it's like the back of his gown was open, and he's just filthy, and, he's, and he just starts to totter like an old tree, and he falls backwards, and I come up behind him, and I put my arms around him and catch him against my, ch my chest with his back to me, and he starts to go, damn it, something like he's fighting me, and he's like his naked backside's against me, and he stinks, and I'm just like, whoa, I'm getting queasy, and, uh, and I'm, I'm holding him, and I said, Dad, stop it. I've got you. Let me help you. And in that moment, 
was the moment that I truly forgave my father. Because in that moment, I realized that I was probably the first human being to touch him, besides the doctors and nurses when he's unconscious, to touch him in a way to say, I'm here for you. And he relaxed in my arm, and I felt him accept, even need that embrace in that moment. And that was the moment that I was able to truly enter into my dad's life and begin to actually be a conduit of grace for him um, rather than the victim's son with the bad dad because he had a bad dad and his dad had a bad dad. And we can break the generational sins of our fathers by actually just saying, Lord Jesus, I am bad, but you are good, and I am a saint because your goodness is with me. And when I received the forgiveness of Jesus, I was forced to learn that the forgiven must forgive. And you guys, the harm that we do to ourselves when we hold on to resentment, some of you might be angry at your spouse, some of you may be angry and unforgiving toward a brother, toward a sister, toward a friend, toward a child. And I just want to tell you, the only person you are hurting is yourself. And it hurts to forgive because you must absorb the wrong. But there is freedom in it when you allow love to cover a multitude of sins. His love has covered. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The forgiving God is asking us to accept his forgiveness, not just so that we can be forgiven, but so that we can be conduits of that same forgiveness to others. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray right now for my brothers in this room, and my prayer over every one of them. In fact, I want to just ask, guys, if you would just open your hands, palms facing toward the sky. You know, this is a common position that we take as Christians throughout the church's history. And it's, a, it's the same stance that a child takes when they want their father to pick them up. It's also the same stance that a beggar takes when they just are hoping someone will put a coin in their hand. And it represents for us the empty-handedness of our lives and the total trust in the fact that everything that needs to be done has already been done in Jesus. And Jesus, we come to you empty-handed, and we ask that your forgiveness would be real for us. And we accept and receive your forgiveness and your love. And we pray as our hands are open, Lord, that you would fill us, which means we are surrendering to you and to your goodness. And I pray for anyone here who feels like it's much easier to clench the fist than it is to open the hand. That whatever hurt, whatever pain, Lord, we don't have to pretend like we haven't been hurt and we don't have to pretend that we haven't hurt. What we have to do is just simply lay it all at your feet and allow your love to wash over us. And so, Lord, I pray for these men that the greatest that they would understand that the bravest 
manliest thing that they can do is be broken before you. Because Lord Jesus, you can do nothing with a divided heart, but you can do everything with a broken heart. Lord, we come to you, and Lord, I'm broken without you. I need you. I need your forgiveness every day, and I thank you that it is fully mine. And Lord, I ask for your forgiveness for the ways that I can withhold a forgiveness that you have so freely given. And Lord, help us to release the wrongs that have been committed against us and help us to receive forgiveness for the wrongs that we have committed against others. May we be conduits of your grace today. I pray this over my brothers. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.